0: This is everything that we represent and everything that we stand for. And I would say this, if you don't agree with anything else that the church ever teaches and this church ever teaches, you have to agree on this one thing. Jesus is the son of God. He is the Son of God. He is God. We have a Trinitarian view of God because that's what the Bible teaches us. In John chapter 1 it says, uh, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. Um, And then we go to the creation in Genesis chapter 1. And it says that that, uh, Jesus was present with God in creation before the light was ever Created before the lights, before the heaven and the earth, before all this stuff was created, Jesus was there. God used plural pronouns to describe his role in creation. Plural. Jesus, Holy Spirit, God the Father, they're all together. They're all equal. They're all one, but they're all distinct. Some people would say, well, it's kind of like the three different forms of water. You know, you have your your solid, you have your liquid, you have your gas form. Some would say it's like the hands of a clock. You have a minute hand, an hour hand, a second hand. They're all different, but they all serve the same purpose. Jesus is God. He is is everything in our our faith. So I want to start by just sharing some of the verses to just confirm in you That Jesus said he is God, that he is connected to the Father, and that they are one. Uh, So you might write these down. We're going to go through these quickly, but then we're going to get into really the way I think that we're supposed to talk about the subject matter. In Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20, it was asked, who do people, Jesus asked of the disciples, who do people say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. In John chapter 4, Jesus having a conversation with the woman at the well, and she said, I know that Messiah, in parentheses, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. And in John chapter 10, 25 through 26, it says that if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe me. The miracles I do in my father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. In John ten thirty-three through 36, it says that we are not stoning you. These are the religious figures. We are not stoning you. Because of any of these bracketed miracles, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you are a mere man claiming to be God. This is the most definitive of all of the verses for us. If we've ever questioned whether or not Jesus is really God or the Son of God, this is it. Remember what he was crucified on the cross for. Not because he healed people, cast out demons, or loved people, and and included outsiders into the mix. It was because he claimed to be God. And that went against the Jewish law, the Jewish customs, and everything the Jews represented. This mere man cannot possibly be our God. And so they killed him for his accusations and declarations. In Mark chapter 14, 16 through, or 61 through 62, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And he replied, I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then in John eight fifty eight, he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Now if you go back to Exodus three, when Moses stood before God at the burning bush, and he says, Now when I go to Egypt, when I go to the to my people, and I tell them that you have sent me to them, who do I say sent me? And God used two words I am has sent you. What that little pithy phrase means is in the Greek it would be the word ego, in the Hebrew I can't remember how to pronounce it, but, but it's equally as significant. But uh, the I am means this, I am the same today that I was yesterday and the same that I will be tomorrow. I have no beginning, I have no end. I am not capable of changing shapes, of changing my mind, of being anything different than what I was yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You can depend on me historically, you can depend on me in the present, and you can depend on me in the future. I am God. This is what I do. And then Jesus piggybacked on that in Mark 14 and John 8, and he said, I am. The two are the same. They're distinct, but they're the same. When you pray, you have the privilege and the option. You can pray to the Father. You can pray to the Son. You can pray to the Holy Spirit, or you can just, like I do, just rapid fire, go to each one of them. You're covering the basis all together, but why not? Say, Holy Spirit, love you. Jesus, I thank you. God, you're awesome, dude. And then just go from there. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean that we're polytheistic. We don't have multiple gods. We have one God in three different persons. But the thing is, I could use verses like this all day long to try to convince you that Jesus is God. But here's the, here's the, the crux of it all. If you don't want to believe that he's God, you're not going to believe. If I, if you don't want to believe that Jesus is who he said is, if you don't want to accept that there's a God in the world, then you're not going to accept the scriptures either. If that's the case, then I'd be wasting my time with you. To tell you that the Bible is true when you are denial, that's a that's a, a conflict. To say that Jesus is who the Bible said he is, that would be a conflict. This is really all about your choice. Do you want to accept and believe that there is a God in this world? And if he is, is he capable of writing a book like this? And is he capable of having a son that is equal to him, but yet distinct? This is all about faith. It's all about faith. And and I I don't know where you are on this. I don't know where your faith is on this, but I can tell you this, there's room for improvement because I know there's room for improvement in my life. There are days that I question and say, God, it doesn't make sense. And then God reminds me, if it all made sense, wouldn't that make you God? So there has to be a point in our lives where we say, you know what, God, I'm not going to understand it all. I'm just going to trust you. And when it comes to matters of Jesus, I have learned to trust him for one very, very important reason. Without Jesus, I would not be uh, saved from my sinful life. I would not have a promise of eternal life. And I would have no hope in this world if it were not for Jesus. So for me, it's everything. So that that leads us with uh, a couple questions here to just kind of ponder for ourselves. Who is Jesus? Is he really God? And, and if, if you're not sure of the answer, what would it take to convince you? Now, a lot of people have this mindset, and this even came out in the, in the 40 days of being tempted in the desert when he was alone with, with the devil. The devil said things you know like, why don't you go up to the pinnacle of this building and jump off and let your angels protect you And that would impress everybody and they would then believe that you are who you say you are. And Jesus is like, nope, that dog don't hunt. Ain't going to play that game. Not even going to go there. Not going to do it. Because he knew what his timing was. He knew what the temptation of the forms that it was taking. He knew what his destiny was. And he's like, you know what? I'm not going to listen to a word you say. I'm going to trust my father. So... What a lot of people will say is, well, I need him to show himself to me. I need him to prove himself to me. I want to see miracles. I want to see something extraordinary happen right here in my midst, uh, and then I will believe, right? And to that, Jesus addresses in this particular little passage, it is a wicked generation that asks, For a miraculous sign. But he says this, none of you are going to get one. Now this is kind of interesting because we read all through the the Gospels and we find example after example after example of him performing miracles. But he says to this generation, this wicked generation, evil generation, you're not going to get a sign other than this, the sign of Jonah. Jonah. Now, we read through that, and I've read this many times. I'm like, okay, sign of Jonah. What in the world is that supposed to mean, right? But he he makes it very clear here, the sign of Jonah. When he went to the Ninevites, remember, Jonah was swallowed by the whale, spit up on the beach. He went back, and he said, okay, God, I don't like Ninevites. I don't want to go to Nineveh, but I'm going to be faithful to you because I don't want to be swallowed by another fish. And so he goes to Nineveh, and he proclaims the good news to them that there is a God... And they all turned, probably not 100% of them, but a majority of the city turned and they repented of their sin and believed in God. You see, for, for, for the Ninevites, the sign that they were seeking was Jonah. Jonah was their sign of who God is of what God wants, what God desires, his capabilities, his power, his nature, his character, all of that wrapped up into Jonah. When Jonah said, I will go and I will preach, but I, will, I know the reason he didn't want to go is because he knew they would convert, they would repent and be changed, but he didn't like them that much. Jesus says this, As Jonah went to the Ninevites, as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, I am the sign for you. So in other words, what he's saying, okay, I understand you all want a miraculous sign. You want a provocative sign. You want a a strong indicator that I am God, that I am who I said I am. Here I am. I am your sign. And the people like, no, that's not good enough. You're going to have to do better than that. But that's all they're going to get. Jesus is the sign that he is God. Everything about him is, is a sign. Everything is a testimony as to God. Now, here, here's the crazy part of this that we need to understand. What, what Jesus was, was identifying for us more than anything else was the love of God. The love of God. And we could, get, we could get distraught. We could say, no, I, I want God to be a provider, a protector, a, a, a military warrior is what the Jews were hoping for throughout the Old Testament. Whatever it is that you really want of God is, fails in comparison to this one reality. What you really need is to know that you have a God who loves you. And this is where a lot of people go wrong. It it would be easier, it would be funner, it would be less convicting to just follow rules and jump a couple hurdles and say, I've done what I need to do, now I am a Christ follower. But to love God, that's what separates the men from the boys and the girls from the women. Do you love God? That's where it gets complicated. So he says to them... I am your sign. I'm the only sign you're going to get. This is it. This is all you're going to get. He goes on further, and he talks about the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, that she came from the south. She traveled all over looking for Solomon because of his reputation of wisdom. And she found him, and it says that she sat near him, and she listened to him as he talked and as he, as he uh, taught. And she was a believer that Solomon is extremely wise. And Jesus says... The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, whereas the Israelites did not. And now there is one greater than Jonah right there. There's one greater than Solomon right there. In Jesus, greater wisdom, greater signs, greater testimony. But the Ninevites, the foreigners, repented the queen she she didn 't say she repented, but she was a believer, whereas the jews god 's chosen people are just plumb religious and and narrow minded and stuck on their own agenda. The Ninevites will stand in judgment against them so so here 's some things uh, to ponder in Romans chapter ten Romans ten, an amazing story. Uh, How is it possible for people in this world to to come to the fact and to accept the fact that that Jesus is who he said he is? How do we get to that point? Well, Romans 10 says that the word is near you. It's in your words, it's in your mouth, and it's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 8 and 9. So it's a two-part conversion. It's a two-point acceptance that you confess it with your mouth and you believe it in your heart. Now, this is, again, a problem area for a lot of people because we like to think, I believe in God, therefore I'm good. Therefore, I've got an eternal ticket to heaven, to paradise. But believing in God alone is not good enough because even the devil believes The contrary part of that, and it comes in James, says that demons believe, but they even shudder at the name of Jesus. Demons quake in the presence of Jesus, and they quake even when the name of Jesus is implored over them. But we, as believers, show no response whatsoever. We're just content, believing, Well, belief alone is not good enough. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe it in your heart that he was raised from the dead. In Romans 10, 14 through 15, it says this, How can they call on the name they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? So if everyone, before they can come to a conversion experience, a a transformation and become Christians and apprentices of Jesus, they have to hear about Jesus. And how are they going to hear if nobody tells them? And so we all have a mandate to go and tell them who Jesus is. And so every once in a while, the preacher gets up here and says, by the way, Jesus is the Son of God. He is who he said he is. And they quote these same passages I just quoted. And they say, now you need to believe and confess with your mouths and believe it in your heart that what I have said about Jesus is true. As long as what I say about Jesus meshes with what Jesus said about Jesus. You might get some distortions in the world today. This is why it's critical for you to know what Jesus said about himself. Don't ever just take my word for it. So what will it take to convince the world that Jesus is who he said he is? I've got some other passages for you, and I'll be brief on these, but they're all very critical. Matthew chapter 12 is the first one. Because, you know, what it comes down to, we are people that would like to see miracles. We would like to see proof that he is who he says he is. And this is what's, uh, I'm, I'm not being judgmental because I've been there. But what's interesting is, is when somebody who is not a believer says to you, how do you know Jesus is the only way? And a lot of times the believers buckle under the pressure. And you might say, I really don't know how to answer that. I've had several people ask me, how do I answer that? And I will tell them, just tell them what you know, what you've heard, what you've seen, what you've touched with your hands. Testify to what you do know, and God will take it from there. But the fact is, we buckle because we don't know how to answer that. In Matthew 12, uh, starting with uh, verse 38... It says that some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And he replied, A wicked and adulterous generation ask for a miraculous sign. We'll skip ahead. Matthew 16, verse 1. This one's a little bit more interesting. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus, and they tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now we have a new a game-changer. They're not just curious, they want to test him. Jesus don't play that game. He don't play that game. So so Jesus, knowing that they were just testing him, they, they, they weren't really interested in seeing a miracle, they were hoping that he would hang himself. They were hoping that he would do something or say something by which they could hate him for. They were testing him to see if he was really godly, if he was really who he said he was. Jesus caught on to it. In Mark chapter 8, verse 11, hopefully I can make sense of these when we come to the end, or hopefully God will, rather, because I'm not smart enough. But in Mark 8, verse 11, here we go. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him again, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. One of the the foundational tenets that I'm trying to impress upon you is this. The things that that we would call miracles throughout Jesus' life, healing the sick, casting out demons we would say, were miracles. The Jewish people, the religious leaders, did not see those as being significant miracles. Why is that? One is because Jesus sent out his disciples to do the same things that he was doing. And so if you have Peter, James, and John casting out demons and healing the sick, then doesn't that downplay what Jesus is and who he claims to be? So to them, that wasn't miraculous. And if you think about it even further, sorcerers and magicians and witches could do that. They could heal people. Doctors could heal people by making some kind of a a chemical compound and putting it on their eyes. Their eyes could be restored. So they didn't see those things as being significant miracles. So we would have to say, okay, if those are not really classified miracles to the religious people, what are? Well, you remember when Jesus walked on water... None of the religious people were present. He didn't do it for them. He did it for his disciples. When Jesus fed the 5,000 and then later the 4,000, the the, the, the religious people were on the outskirts watching in, looking in. They weren't really, they probably, I would say, they weren't there when they saw the, the bread multiplied and the fishes multiplied. Even the disciples didn't see it. They just kept passing it out and it wouldn't run out. It wouldn't come up empty. And so for those types of things, I don't believe they were ever there to begin with. I don't think they ever saw it. And so their eyes weren't opened. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, they heard the story, but they weren't there because they didn't go to funerals because religious people aren't supposed to be around dead bodies. So they wouldn't have been there unless, you know, they knew somebody. They didn't really see those things. But you see, they really weren't looking for the right reasons. Interesting stuff anyway to me. In John chapter 2, well, first we go to Luke eleven sixteen, uh, basically says the same things. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. And in John chapter two eighteen, it says, then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us? And listen to what they said, in order to prove your authority to us as if Jesus needed to prove it to them. Now this came right after he went into the, the temple courtyard and he overturned the money changers' tables and he just uh, chastised them. He drove them out with a whip and then they said they demanded of him because they were angry at this point. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to us? In John four forty eight, another interesting one. He says this, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. First Corinthians one twenty two: the Jews demanded miraculous signs and the Greeks looked for wisdom. So this is just interesting to me because... Everyone wants to see a sign. They want to see a miracle. They want to see something amazing. And even when they see it, they still don't believe it. They still don't believe it. Jesus knows that. God knows that. So don't be looking for a sign that that will be contingent upon whether or not you believe or not. Because he isn't going to play that game with you. He knows that if your heart is already calloused, he could do a hundred miracles in your presence and you still won't believe so don't make that a criteria for him. In Matthew 11, 21 through 24, this is convicting stuff. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in your towns had been performed elsewhere, you had been, oh wait, hold on, I've got this all backwards. I better go here. I wrote it down wrong. I don't want to confuse you. I don't really don't. But in Matthew 11, 21 through 24, let's just get this right from the horse's mouth. I'm sorry, Jesus, I didn't call you a horse. Um, um, anyway. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre or Sidon, which were pagan nations that had polytheistic and demonic gods that they followed, if those miracles would have been performed in those two towns, you would have repented a long time ago with sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. So those three cities are isolated because of their weak faith and their obstinance to the things of God. If the miracles were performed in your towns elsewhere, those people would have repented just like Nineveh under Jonah's preaching. But because you're so calloused, because you're so stubborn and stiff-necked, because you're so abhorrent and so resistant to the things of God, you're going to be judged critically for this and you will spend your, your eternity in judgment for this. All because they looked for a sign, but they had no, no intentions of ever accepting those signs as proof of who God is. This is a wicked and adulterous generation. This is an evil generation that's never satisfied when God shows up and does a miracle. When God does something amazing, people learn how to dismiss it. Today, a person could be healed in a hospital and we'll just give credit to the doctors because of all their education. When, when, when extra money is raised, we know we have a goal to raise money, and, and all of a sudden this huge gift comes in, it's just because somebody had a death in the family. God had nothing to do with it. When your marriage is saved, it's because of your humility, not because of any divine interaction. When, when your child says, I want to learn about Jesus, and you're like, well, somebody's been ta- talking to you because he never would have came up with this on his own, You know, there are miracles in us and around us all the time, and still people don't believe. So let's quit asking for a sign. Let's just start trusting him, believing him, and following him, and expecting him to show us the way and show us the decisions we need to make. But I hear this all the time. I don't know if I should marry this person or not, so I'm praying that God gives me a sign. When I was in Owensboro, Kentucky, a lady came to the church and she says, well, we were looking for a sign that this was the right church for us. And after the service, the service did not impress them. But after the service, they walked out to the parking lot and while she was getting into her car, she saw some sticks or some a leaf or something that had the formation of a cross in it. And she said, up, there's my sign. This is where God wants me to be i 'll tell you this one i won 't tell you completely the details of it, but this was this one is the one that opened my eyes. I was preaching at the Peoria Rescue Mission one afternoon and I, and I did a message from the book of of matthew or luke i don 't remember one which one, but afterwards I just under, just listen to what i 'm saying. A homosexual man came up to me and he said, "Thank you so much for that message. It has connected with me so much." Because I believe God sent me here to meet Matthew over here. And even though he's married and has kids and is straight, I believe that God brought me here to meet him because you used the book of Matthew and that confirmed to me that this is where I'm supposed to be and that this is God's decision for me. And I just, my my jaw dropped all the way down to my ankles. I'm like, oh my gosh, how can I tell him any differently? He's already made up his mind. You hear stuff like that all the time. We need to be a people that quit looking for a sign because they're everywhere. Signs of God's involvement in this world are everywhere. It's built into creation. The, the signs of miracles are everywhere. They're all around us. Every time a person says, I want Jesus in my life, I want to be baptized into the faith, that's a miracle. Any time a person is, is, overcomes an addiction is a miracle. Anytime. time... Anytime I've seen a demon cast out of a person by the name of Jesus, that is a miracle. Anytime I see a marriage resolved or, or reconciled, that is a miracle. Anytime the Packers win, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just getting off, you know, that, that, that came into my head, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> just making friends, that's what we're all about, right? Yeah. But do you see the point? If you want to believe in God, there's evidence everywhere. Just open up your eyes. Open up your hearts. If you want to believe that Jesus is who he said he is, you might just have to trust him a little bit. You might just have to just say, you know what? Maybe I need to read the book and let it teach me. Let it show me what I need to to take from this. And I'm telling you, you're going to find Jesus on every single page. Even in the Old Testament, he's on every page. Because this whole book is a living testimony as to his life. And the gospel that we know is the byproduct of this entire book. Because it was a miracle to get all these different men together to write these testimonies that never contradict, but always confirm and strengthen each other, the other testimonies. It's, it's an amazing gift. And then the Holy Spirit is plugged into us to bear conviction of our sins, to bear witness to our righteousness that only comes from God. And man, it's, it's just an amazing process, if you believe it. Let's pray. Holy Father, we just open up our lives to you and pray that you'll continue to teach us, that you'll continue to convict us and open up our hearts and open up our minds that you may just lead us and teach us and develop us to become the the agents of God that you've called us to be. Help us, Father, for the sake of this messed up world. Help us to be believers who are completely convinced, not because of signs, but because of your testimony. That is a miracle. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for loving us even before we knew your name. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand and sing our quote. Clo-